<laughs> All right. Um, so last last class of the of the quarter, um, kind of want to work back just a quick overview of where we've been a bit, and then kind of go from there. And again, class five is titled "Making Your Case." We've talked a lot about background information. Finally, get to okay. How do we present a positive case for Christianity? Um, obviously, the beginning we talked about the polarized world that we live in, um, and how we all contribute to that. Um, talked about a digital and a secular culture causes to ref- resist reflection and resist thoughts about God. And those are kind of two hard ones. You're trying to put them together, and that's what we're trying to foster in ourselves and in people we know that don't know Christ. Reflection about their soul, their eternal state, and thoughts about God, and our culture's actively working against that. Uh, we talked about meeting people where they are. Right, we call that incarnational ministry. It's been a couple of weeks since we talked about that. Does anybody remember any of those five pieces that we talked about to incarnational ministry. Enter their world or something. Good. Enter their world. And then kind of correlating to that, we said open your home. Open your home. Listen to learn. Listen to learn. As opposed to right thinking about how can I respond right away, but let me genuinely try and understand your position from your point of view, not just the kind of the caricature that I may have in my head. Fourth was define with charity. Define with charity. Okay, <laughs> never, never, never frame somebody else's position in a way that they wouldn't own themselves. You, you definitely wouldn't want somebody to do that to you. We don't want to do that to them. We can do that in such a way where we still say, "And I disagree with them in this way," but define it in such a way that they would own it. And then the fifth one was what? Play the long game, right? We talked about how when we change our mind, especially on big things in life, it usually takes a little while, right? It's not somebody hits us with a 60-second sound bite, and then we decide, oh, yeah, I'll change my mind on that. It takes a while. Um, so understand that um, and, and play the long game. We then talked about um, delivering the gospel in understandable ways, understandable terms. Um, sometimes we need to define a little bit some terms. And sometimes we can um, use terms and reference points that are in somebody's world. Um, it's contextualization is the big word for that. Last week we looked at thinking through barriers to faith. Talked about a few common ones there. Um, and then this week we finally get to making a positive case for Christianity. Um, before we jump into that, I'm going to hit one last thing. There were seven course objectives we said at the outset. Uh, but I just kind of want to walk through those and see where we're at. I know there's at least one that we didn't get to because we lost some classes. Um, and that'll be all right. So the first course objective was this. I would like for you at the conclusion of the course to be able to articulate the mission of the church. Talked about this a couple of the earlier weeks. The mission of the church. What is the mission of the church? Make disciples. Make disciples. Boom. Hit the first one. Great job, Dave. Number two, be able to articulate the gospel in one minute. Dave is out. He just answered that one. Can Thank somebody you. else? God, man, Christ response. Even four words. Good job, Jocelyn. <laughs> Does anybody remember what some of the questions are? So let's just kind of work through one at a time. There's, there's the four statements that are, and then each kind of answers a set of questions. For God, what were some of the questions that we're asking there? Where, where are you? I'm sorry. Uh, so God, man, Christ response. Yeah. And then each of those words is kind of speaking truth to oh, a one, two, maybe even three questions. Uh, for God is who made us and to whom are we accountable? Who made us and to whom are we accountable? 
right? So it has both where did we come from and we, where are we going kind of implications. Um, then the second one, man, what are the questions that are being asked there? What is our problem? Are we in trouble and why? What is our problem? Are we in trouble and why? Start, kind of starting to make sense of maybe the brokenness that we see in the world and we all experience. Christ is answering what questions? God's solution to the problem. God's solution to the problem, basically stated. And then response is, how do I come to be part of that solution that God has provided? Okay, so we can define the gospel as Jocelyn did in four words in about 3.2 seconds. Um, and we can just slightly expand that a little bit. And we've kind of got a, a working outline, a framework in our mind to see, oh, this person is really resonating with how do I make sense of the brokenness? This person is really resonating with am I going to be held accountable for the things I've done? Right? We can start to frame in the story around those four points. The third course objective was we wanted to understand our society in this historical moment, particularly how technology and secularism are impacting the broader culture. That's a little, little wordier there. Understand our historical moment, and especially how um, secular, secularism and the, the digital aspects of our society are impacting us. Does anybody want to give a stab at um, you know, 20, 30 seconds, kind of quick on what that looks like? Yes. And so as a result, we can look at that and we can see how it makes it hard for us to reflect on the state of our soul, how it makes it hard for us to pray, how it makes it hard for us to memorize scripture, how there's all those different aspects there. Now, how much harder is it going to be for somebody who doesn't have the Holy Spirit to think deeply and respond to the gospel? Doesn't move us to despair because the Holy Spirit is working in and through and even above all of our actions. Right, this class we focused a lot on the human side. Here's, here's some things we can do. But we've also talked about, like in this, when we talk about the, the sovereignty of God and salvation, God isn't dependent upon us. He doesn't need us. Um, but for someone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, so it's going to be tough. And so I can look out, not with despair, because the Holy Spirit's working, but I look out with empathy and say, hey, it's going to be tough, but I'm going I'm to be persistent. I'm going to keep working. I'm going to keep loving. I'm going to keep teaching here. Fourth course objective, articulate action steps for contextualization and incarnational ministry. So we just walked through the incarnational ministry, the five things. Um, contextualization, that's putting the gospel in, um, stating it in a way that someone can understand. Maybe somebody give one example of, of what that may look like. I think I used the example of them. Yes, the language. Okay, I wanna, that, that's going to be significant. Um, what else might that look like? Tribal. Does that have to do with tribal? Maybe not. I might be reading the wrong. Like using like movies or story, popular stories and culture, explaining yeah. the gospel through those. Sure. Finding a redemptive theme perhaps in a movie or a story um, and kind of draw that out there. And it, it shows the points of 
connectivity between that particular story and what the gospel is, but it also helps you to show here's where the gospel's a little different too. This is not the same thing, and here's where it's actually better. Yeah, that's good. Um, number five, grow in empathy for those who hold different beliefs. That's not really an objective that you can give a, an answer to in 30 seconds, right? But I, I hope that's happened as we've talked through these things. Sixth course objective um, is one that we just haven't really gotten too much. Understand the importance of gospel cultural hermeneutics. We had a whole class set aside for that, and that, that got canceled. And then number seven, be able to articulate a comprehensive case for Christianity in less than three minutes. And that's tonight. So we'll, uh, we'll jump in. Um, our basic outline, you see at the beginning um, of your note sheet, um, it's one, is there a God? And then at the top of page two, if yes, why the Christian God? Um, and so that, that's kind of the flow that we'll use tonight. Just, is there a God? Okay, if there is a God, then why do you say the Christian God is the one? And we talked about that a little last week. It was kind of part one, part two. Um, and so what, what I want to do tonight is, um, is talk a little bit on the conversational side. Here's how I would frame this. And then a little bit more to give you sufficient ammunition kind of in your brain to step up to the plate. Because last week we talked about um, the key being to undersell our case with, um, oh, now I'm blanking, persistence. Undersell with persistence, right? Um, and so somebody asked me, hey, why are you a Christian? I'm, there's any number of things that I could say, but if I wanted to give a more evidentially-based argument I'm, or statement, I might say, well, as I studied, I just found that the best evidence from science and from history and from philosophy all pointed to the exact same conclusion that Christianity is true. And just kind of leave it hanging at that. And if somebody wanted to press on that, well, I'm, I'm more than happy to do that. I, I hope that they will press in on that. But generally speaking, as somebody asks me that, and, and you're going to know with the person you're talking to, but generally speaking, you've got a longer answer in your mind than what they're probably ready for, right? And so I'd rather say a little less and kind of leave them saying, well, could you tell me a little more, please? Uh, unpack what you mean by that. Um, rather than boring them and they say, oh gosh, I'm never going to ask him that again. I got roped in for 45 minutes and you know, I was trying to go do something. Um, and so that's kind of the general approach I take. But, but to do that, you've got to be confident that if I say the best evidence from science, history, and philosophy all points to one conclusion, well, you've got to be prepared for them to press in on any one of those. Because most of the time, somebody's not interested in all three. Right, as I say this, there's probably one that your mind is drawn to, like, hmm, what do you mean about the philosophical part? What do you mean about history? And if they're going to press in there, then we've got to be prepared. It's kind of the um, responsibility is ours to be prepared across the board if we're going to make it a statement like that. Um, so when we say, is there a God? There's several arguments that we can make from what's called general revelation. General revelation is... Um, contrasted with special revelation. General is, this is things we learn about God. It's how God generally reveals himself to all men, and it's through creation. And there's a lot of different ways you can parse that out. Special revelation being through the Bible and through Jesus is miraculous kinds of revelation. Um, and so when I say, is there a God? How do we see God in creation? 
in general revelation. Um, and so the first argument is that from Origins, Romans 1 talks about this. And I, I put Romans 1 in there parenthetically because I don't, to make the argument, you don't need to cite Romans 1. The argument stands independently of Romans 1. It's just Romans 1 describes this argument, if that, that makes sense. Um, and so this is the video I sent out, by the way, kind of um, the technical name is the cosmological argument. You don't need to worry about that. It's just an argument from origins. Premise one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Okay, that seems straightforward enough. Premise two, the universe began to exist. And premise three, therefore, the universe has a cause. Okay, then if the universe does have a cause, what must that cause be or be like? Um, must be something outside of space and time. It must be something that is immaterial. It must be something that's incredibly powerful. Hmm, what's an incredibly powerful thing that is immaterial and exists outside of space and time? That's beginning to sound a lot like God. Uh, obviously, this does nothing to establish whether the Christian God you know, Muslim God, Jewish God, whatever. It doesn't begin to establish that. Um, but it starts to move us towards, is there a God? Now, the obvious objection, the question is, okay, that's fine. The universe has a cause. Who made God? Right? And that's the, I think, the most, the most likely and most common kind of pushback there. Um, and the interesting thing is, if you want to just look at the technical argument, well, God never began to exist. Therefore, God doesn't need a cause. I find that answer satisfactory. A lot of people don't because it, it seems like a um, circular reasoning to them, right? Um, and so the thing that I think is helpful to point out is it was only within about the last 60 years that it was scientifically proven that the universe did have a cause. Or sorry, I misspoke. That the universe did have a beginning. And so the, 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 you go back to like 1930 and what the argument is, Okay, one group says God has existed forever. The other group says the universe has existed forever. And at that point, it was kind of like, that's no problem to say that something has existed forever. It's just what everybody had to, you had to start somewhere. Well, then, as we continue to do more research in cosmology, and um, what we find is, wait, the universe actually did have a point of beginning, also known as the Big Bang Theory. Um, and it's kind of getting at that. So, so you may hear Christians say, in an apologetic sense, um, I have no problem with the bang, Big Bang Theory. I just know who did the banging. Kind of a, a joke-ish way of saying, like, I know, I know who started it all. Right? Um, pretty basic argument. Romans 1 talks about everybody knows that this didn't just come into existence out of nothing. Romans 1, 18 to 20 there. Um, so it's a simple argument from origins. The second one is an argument from design or fine-tuning or the technical term is the teleological argument. Um, and so rather than having me talk about it, um, I'll just show you a quick little video, about five, six minutes, um, that I think is, is helpful and easy to kind of share with people that may, um, may be more inclined to this kind of argumentation. From galaxies and stars, 
down to atoms and subatomic particles. <laughs> the very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. Scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered by even a hair's breadth, no physical, interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, no life, no planets, no chemistry. Consider gravity, for example. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life-permitting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. To get a handle on how many tiny points on the dial this is, compare it to the number of cells in your body, or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, the universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars could form and light couldn't exist, or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result. No stars, no planets, and no life. Or consider the expansion rate of the universe. This is driven by the cosmological constant, a change in its value by a mere one part in 10 to the 120th parts would cause the universe to expand too rapidly or too slowly. In either case, the universe would again be light prohibiting. Or another example of fine tuning. If the mass and energy of the early universe were not evenly distributed to an incomprehensible precision of one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd, the universe would be hostile to life of any kind. The fact is, our universe permits physical, interactive life only because these and many other numbers have been independently and exquisitely balanced on a razor's edge. Wherever physicists look, they see examples of fine tuning. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. If anyone claims not to be surprised by the special features that the universe has, he's hiding his head in the sand. These special features are surprising and unlikely. What is the best explanation for this astounding phenomenon? There are three live options. The fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Which of these options is the most plausible? According to this alternative, the universe must be light-permitting. The precise values of these constants and quantities could not be otherwise. But is this plausible? Is a light-prohibiting universe impossible? Far from it. It's not only possible, it's far more likely than a light-permitting universe. The constants and quantities are not determined by the laws of nature. There's no reason or evidence suggests that fine-tuning is necessary. How about chance? Did we just get really, 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 really lucky? No. The probabilities involved are so ridiculously remote as to put the fine-tuning well beyond the reach of chance. So, in an effort to keep this option alive, 
some have gone beyond empirical science and opted for a more speculative approach known as the multiverse. They imagine a universe generator that cranks out such a vast number of universes that odds are life permitting universes will eventually pop out. However, there's no scientific evidence for the existence of this multiverse. It cannot be detected, observed, measured, or proved. And the universe generator itself would require an enormous amount of fine-tuning. Furthermore, small patches of order are far more probable than big ones. So the most probable observable universe would be a small one inhabited by a single, simple observer. But what we actually observe is the very thing that we should least expect, a vast, spectacularly complex, highly ordered universe inhabited by billions of other observers. So even if the multiverse existed, which is a moot point, it wouldn't do anything to explain the fine-tuning. Given the implausibility of physical necessity or chance, the best explanation for why the universe is fine-tuned for life may very well be it was designed that way. A common-sense interpretation of the facts suggest that a super-intellect monkeyed with physics and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. There is, for me, powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Wow, that was awesome. Yeah, it's a powerful look at, like, let's just think about what's going on here. Right? I think they talked about, like, two or three of those different constants that make life so um, improbable um, there are dozens if not hundreds of those that they could go through um, and talk about and you know for trying to cram into a six minute video and kind of make your make your point not be writing your own dissertation um, and so there, there's compelling evidence from it's, it's a little bit different angle on the scientific piece um, that there must be a god Again, this doesn't get you to Christian God, per se. Right? The God of Islam, theoretically, could still be true on the basis of the fine-tuning argument. But our first question is, is there a God? Um, now, you might want to jot in your notes, too. That video is from an organization called Reasonable Faith. Um, that's the organization that um, William Lane Craig started. Um, they've got a couple of other animated videos that I think are kind of helpful just as kind of snippets as conversation starters. Um, if you want to write this down, that's fine. If you don't want to, that's fine. Um, notice here the argument from design is, is aptly described in Psalm 19. That's what they read at the very end there. The heavens declare the glory of God. But that, that's the design argument. And so you can, you can look at it and say, no, I have confidence that um, the best evidence from science says there must be a God. We can't be here by randomness, by chance, um, it's not possible. 
Um, before we, we move on into some of the other um, discussion points, I guess I'll pause here. Are there any comments or questions that come to mind? Sometimes I think, well, God can create that also. Maybe God's created other areas of life that we don't know about, or you know, other other creations that it's not good for us to see or be a part of. Or, you know, that we can't. I'm getting out there. But yeah, I mean, one of the. But I do feel like science, when they talk, that science and Christianity is, to me, it seems like it is starting to come together because now it seems like it's it's all starting to match up with what's in the Bible or what's. Right. I, th I think there's the expectation because we have, because we have limited knowledge. Yeah. Science is still a, a very rapidly growing endeavor. If we had full knowledge, we would see how everything aligns. We don't have full knowledge. So it's reasonable as a Christian to expect there will be some things that the Bible says that I cannot give you a full scientific explanation right. for. Right? And so there's going to be some things like, I'm not sure about that. But these are pretty bedrock kinds of things, I think, that we can look at and say, no, because the core things are on such solid ground, that there may be other kind of tangents, per se, that I'm not quite sure how that fits together, how that works just yet. Um, but I'm confident in what God has said in his word and in the scriptures, and I can stand on that without uh, that need to doubt. Um, well, it's all beyond our, our way. It's highly intelligent, highly so beyond our scope. That only the Bible and Jesus can can simplify it all for us. So we don't even we don't need to get into mathematics. We don't need to do. But when you're trying to talk to somebody who doesn't believe, or is, then you almost have to have this um, sort of a pathway or, or a gap, not gap, but a, a pathway to bridge the gap. To bridge, exactly. Yeah, someone's really interested. The there, there was a. Um, and then a they can start to pull away from the mathematics and then look more towards the Bible. Again. Right, there's a, a kind of a, a phrase that I like in these apologetic conversations. You want believers thinking, because it, it's kind of easy for Christians at points to say, well, God said it, I believe at the end, and just kind of leave it there. It's like, look, you're not going to be able to investigate every rabbit trail of cosmology and astrophysics. It's just not going to happen. But that doesn't mean that you can't engage and expand your brain a little bit and think through like, wow, look how God, that is amazing. And I understand just a little bit more in my brain, and it gives me a much greater awe for who God is. Believers thinking, and thinkers believing. And to see, man, there's somebody who really does care passionately about investigating all of these different things, and I want to be able to have an, a, a dialogue with them. Um, as Paul said, we come all things to all men, that by all means I might save some, because um, that person matters, and their questions matter, and I'm able to speak truth to them um, in the language that, um, that they're used to speaking. Right. Yeah. What was your expression again? Believers thinking, thinkers believing. Okay. It's not mine. I wish I could. Uh, wish I would have thought of it. I could have sold it to somebody. But uh, it was yeah, a conference so I saw. Believers. Stephen Hawkins who, who said that there must be an infinite number of universes to compensate for all those different constants that were so hard to, you know, overcome. So, and we happen to be on one of those infinite number of universes. And what's this proof? Because we are. Yeah, so, so that, the, that is the same argument um, that sometimes Christians will say, 
well, what about the second law of thermodynamics? It's supposed to be that ought to disprove evolution, right? If evolution says things are getting better, second law says things are trending towards chaos and disorder. They're they're mutually exclusive. Showstopper, the end. Um, and while I do believe that's true, sometimes it can be said in such a way that it almost assumes that someone who buys evolution has never thought of that, right? And I've heard I've heard those folks come back and say, like. Christians, how stupid do you think I am that I've never considered the tension between the second law and 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 how evolution w- would come together? And and their response is similar to what Rob just said: of if there is a enough universes out there, and all of them except ours are trending towards disorder, then if in this one tiny pocket of this one it's trending towards order, on the whole, it's still going towards disorder second law still applies i don't buy it it's completely uh what we say ad hoc of kind of hypothesizing something that would get your point to be true without having the evidence to back it like they said with the multiverse um but again i want to define with charity i want to say okay this is this is how they would respond to that um and ultimately i say i don't i don't buy that um but that's kind of a common response there what about your always the video debunks climate change that's all tied into today's world is all about this climate change and I mean that's a hot topic you're talking to people and you know obviously you know that God's the creator of this earth he's not going to want us to destroy it it's for him to destroy yep but there's so much more evidence that proves that no matter what we do I don't think we can destroy it Right. It's a tough topic when you talk to people that really seem to believe in that. Yeah, and I think the thing that's been difficult is when I've had that conversation with people, they often feel like, why do Christian if, if if God made the world and the world is good, then why do no Christians recycle or try to take care of it? And you know, I don't mean to guilt you for not recycling any, but I don't know what your practices are. But I do think it's a fair point. If they say, hey, if this is good, why aren't you trying to take care of it? Why aren't you looking for some cleaner energy sources? Why is that not more of a priority? I think those are some some intersections where um, it's it's easy for me to have a kind of a political outlook of this may fit with this party. And if somebody goes to bring up a given point, to be a little bit dismissive and not necessarily engage and listen to what they're saying, listen to learn. Um, and when I do that, I find a lot of times I, I gain valuable perspectives that I, I didn't have before. Is there somewhere in the Bible, because I'm not the expert here, that says we have dominion or we have control over how we want to run this earth, or how we want to manage it, how we want, if we want to turn it into a big wasteland, we, we can, God may not really care either way. Well, since you said it, it's a wonderful lead, and I appreciate you saying that. Yes, it does. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. It's called the cultural mandate is what we call it. So it's, God says to Adam and Eve, hey, look, this thing is yours. And, and basically, and this is the, this is the Justin translation, it's okay. <laughs> here's the world. Go make it awesome. Oh, okay. Go build stuff that's incredible, have dominion over it, rule over it, name the animals, and just build incredible stuff go go
go have fun. Build skyscrapers and iPads that do face recognition and you know all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so I actually get to preach on that passage uh, in May. We're doing a four-week series on faith and work. Be a great opportunity to invite people that you may have even written in your papers. Like, hey, you want to what the Bible says about how your work intersects with faith and how those things come together. Um, and so what you just cited about we have dominion over the earth is the foundation for work is actually a good thing. Mm-hmm. We oftentimes see it as a necessary evil or it like, oh, I work so that I can give to the missionaries who really do God's work, mm-hmm. which still sort of implies that work is a necessary evil just so I can get the money to send it off to something else that's truly significant. Or, oh, I, I work so I can have unbelieving friends. Well, that's, that's also a good thing that comes from work many times, but the work itself is good. Because here, Genesis 1, we're talking pre-Genesis 3, the fall. Um, and so I'm getting off topic a little bit, but well, you kind of gave me the lead-in. I had to, had to pitch that upcoming yeah. series. I'm excited for that sermon. <laughs> your work is a form of worship. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Another little thing. I mean, you're driving your car, you're spewing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Maybe that's a sin, and I don't know. I wonder how many times I sin every day. Because <laughs> there's always the, there's the big ones that, that, you know, that messes everybody up, and then there's all these little ones that, you know, you could be driving somewhere to help somebody with something or to go preach or go to church, and you're spewing poison in the air. Maybe you're destroying the earth. I don't know. Maybe we need to go back to, like, what the Native Americans did. I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> I got the cheese. Yeah. What would David say? Psalm 19, protect me from presumptuous sins, ones I don't know I'm committing. Some of them are obvious and some are not. And Lord, I need your help because I know I can't do it on my own. Let's keep moving here. Um, those are some of the scientific arguments. And obviously, that's, that I'm not giving you much detail here tonight. Um, what I did do um, on the Hub, um, I put a couple of articles up that I've written that expand these quite dramatically. I think that group will be open for maybe another week or so. So if you want those, feel free to just download, distribute freely to friends that you think might be interested. Make sure you read it first in case you think what I say is garbage. Um, but I put several articles up there um, on things that we're talking about tonight. Um, and those are, those are free to use and, and send around as you please. The next argument um, is more in the philosophical realm. So we talk about science with origins and design. Um, and this is the argument from morality. And this is what Romans 2 talks about. And so let me just read to you briefly from Romans chapter 2. Because um, this is a passage that people oftentimes um, just don't know what to do with. Um, and so I, I think it's, uh, it's very powerful. Again, like the other arguments, this one stands. Into, it's not like it doesn't need Romans 2 to make the argument. Romans 2 is describing what we can see out in nature okay so Romans 2 starting in verse 14 says for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law in other words they don't have the law telling them what to do but they know what to do anyways how is that Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. In other words, everybody is hardwired with a moral code in their, the fabric of their soul. 
Okay, and so then it begs the question, well, where did that come from? Where is that at? So if you want to state the argument in kind of a formal way, you would say it this way. Um, if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist, but objective moral values and duties do exist, therefore God exists. And what we mean by objective moral values and duties is just there are some things that are always wrong no matter what. Right? And in, in our world, there's, there's a lot of stuff we see that it's like, well, given these very unexpected and unusual circumstances, would it be okay to dot, dot, dot. But are there some, is there anything that is always wrong no matter what? Well, yes, yes, there is. I mean, just, you know, there's, um, there's any number of examples come to mind. Is it ever okay to sexually abuse someone? No, that's never okay. Doesn't matter what culture you live in, doesn't matter what time frame you live in, doesn't matter what circumstances you're in, not okay. And so the, the argument then goes, premise one, if God doesn't exist, then these things don't exist. In other words, they could come from nowhere else. There's no other source for objective morality, no other possible source for objective morality besides God. But since objective morality does exist, and the only place it could come from is God, then God must exist. Now, if you want to read about these, I didn't put this on the um, recommended reading. Um, this book by Norm Geisler, Frank Turk, it's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Um, and what it does basically lays out some of these arguments and says the amount of faith required to believe there's no God in light of this data that we have, I, I just can't have that much faith can't go there. I need some more evidence. Um, so I'll tell you the upshot to this is he takes a lot of these arguments and he gives you about 15 to 20 pages that kind of summarizes it pretty nicely. And it's a decent little reference tool in that way. The reason I hesitate to um, recommend that is the tone of the book. As you read, it just feels kind of combative and kind of like, hey, if you've got arguments, you're the really smart Christian and the dumb atheist believes this. Um, and so I, I recommend it with reservation because it's got good content, but the tone is, is pretty rough at times. Um, and so just take that. If, if you go to that book, um, be careful. It's not gentle. It's not gentle. It's not gentle. We're supposed to be gentle. We're supposed to be gentle. <laughs> and in a lot of ways, it, it just feels kind of abrasive. Um, so leave that there. Um, those other things, we'll get to those later. I don't want to spend a bunch of time on this. I know I didn't, I didn't really get into objections at all. This one, you can get lost in the weeds on big time because it's what constitutes a viable source of morality. And at 7 o'clock on a Sunday night, we're all going to get lost on that. So I'm just going to pause there. And if you want to talk about that later, we can come back to it after class um, and kind of engage in some more dialogue there. Um, all three arguments from origins, from design, from morality, point us to, yes, there must be a God. Okay? Again, that does nothing to establish the Christian God. It's just saying there must be a God out there somewhere. And if there's a God, then the next question that everybody would want to ask is, well, which one is the true God? Which one is right? How do you know that the Christian God is the right one? But before I get to that, I'm putting your groups for a second. 
of the three arguments we talked about, which do you find most compelling? Okay, I'll give you about two minutes with somebody near you. There's the three arguments. Which one do you find most compelling, and why is that? Go for it. We have thus established there must be a God. Which God is the true God? Is it said the, the Muslim God, the Christian God, the Jewish God, one of the many Hindu gods? Which one? Um, and when you start to investigate Christianity, um, the, probably the, the most helpful place to start is Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, and he does what most um, religions would never want to do. He says, hey, if you want to show that Christianity should be thrown out, can absolutely be proven false, here's what you do. Here's the testable piece. And as soon as you can test and show that this is false, you will then know that Christianity is true. You can dump it and move on. Now, you can understand why somebody, most religions wouldn't want to say something like that. Because then it puts you, you have to have an incredibly high degree of confidence that that thing can't be done. Otherwise, you've just made yourself irrelevant forever. Right? Here's what Paul says. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That's verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 15. And then verse 17 he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. In essence, he says, all of Christianity is a joke. It's all a hoax. You've all been duped. It's doing nothing for you if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And so once you establish there is a God, and you want to take a look at the Christian guy and say, is this really the true God? It all revolves around Jesus' life, death, resurrection. You know, Denny, Denny Green um, was an NFL coach um, at his famous press conference uh, where he said, and they were who we thought they were, and we let them off the hook. There's a bit where you could kind of steal his line there. If you don't know it, I'm sorry, that's going to be completely unhelpful. You're like, what is Justin talking about? If you're one of the two people in the room that do know what I'm talking about, then you think it's funny. Um, it's a bad loss, yes. You can look it up uh, at a press conference, when you get home, see that press conference. But is Jesus who he said he was? If he is, that's the game changer. And if he's not, it's also a game changer. Uh, I think it was, uh, oh, I forget the guy's name, I don't have it right in front of me. There's a Harvard professor, no, I'm sorry, a Yale professor, um, probably 15, 20 years ago, and he, he had a nice little kind of catchy phrase, he said, if Christ has been raised, then nothing else matters. Because he made me, and he owns me, and he can tell me what to do, and nothing else matters, I follow hard after him. And if Christ has not been raised then nothing else matters. You can go do whatever you want with your life, and it's, it's all going to evaporate when you breathe no more and you go six feet under and start pushing up daisies. If Christ has been raised, nothing else matters, and he gets it all. If Christ has not been raised, then nothing else matters. So, so that's where the conversation has to center. right? And my goal in any apologetic conversation I have is I want to deal with anybody's questions to the best extent I can, whether it be about the evidence for there being a God, whether it be the suffering in the world, whether it be what the Bible says about homosexuality or transgender, or whether why can there be only one way, or loving God, how can he send people to hell, like whatever. I want to address those. 
But I want to move the conversation as quickly as I can to, hey, let's just take a look at what Jesus said about himself. That's, that's what I want to do. And there's two reasons. One is that opens it up to, hey, would you take a look at what Jesus said about himself with me? And all of a sudden, then what you've invited them to do is to study the Bible with you. Right? Don't invite them to study an apologetics book with you. Those words aren't inspired. They're not living and active. They're not sharper than any two-edged sword. The Gospel of John is those the, is those things, right? Um, and so you're moving it's like, hey, where do I actually get you to encounter the voice of God when we read Jesus' words and and investigate them, right? That that's my goal there. Um, today, what I want to do is I want to kind of talk you through when you move that direction. There's going to be some objections about the Bible itself, um, and I, I want to give you kind of some some tools to address that. So we look at the, um, the evidence for the Bible, and a lot of the arguments are based on external evidence, and that, that being, how many manuscripts do we have? So of every ancient book, we don't have the original, including the Bible. Like the, the, the papyrus that Paul wrote the Book of Romans on, we don't have that artifact. What we have is copies of that. That's every book in antiquity, the Bible included. And so then the, the, the question is, how good are the copies? How high quality are they? Um, we'll talk about that in a minute. And I, there, there's a powerful argument there. In the article I posted on the Hub, you'll find that documented in much greater detail than I have time for today. So check that out, because I think that's one of the really strong arguments as well. Um, but there's a piece that's missed in that, um, because it, it sort of, what that can assume is I need this other evidence that's sort of beyond the Bible to prove the Bible. And I think you can actually look inside at the very words of Scripture and see that it testifies to its own truth. And so what I mean by that is there are, there are certain things where you read the Bible and you would say the following. If the disciples made up a false story, then they certainly would not write this that is found in the Bible. And if the New Testament was changed by editors hundreds of years after the fact, they certainly would have changed this statement in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament for that matter. Um, but since those statements still exist, then the only reason they can be there is that the disciples actually wrote down what was true and what happened, even if it hurt their cause, and it demonstrates that nobody had come through and changed it. Because had somebody come through, this is exactly the kind of thing you would change. That's the whole premise to this little book right here called Hidden in Plain View. It's finding surprising features in the text that are like, the only way that makes it to our Bible in 2019 is if it's totally true. It doesn't get in in the first place when it's first being written unless it's true. And people would have all the motivation in the world to take it out through the years. But it's God preserving his own word. Isaiah 48, the flower wither, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Um, and so there's examples like this. Matthew 16, 23, Jesus says to Peter, remember Peter is the kind of the, the leader of the apostles. He would later call him, uh, Peter, you are the rock on which I will build my church. Like if you're looking at, here's, I'm the God of the universe, and I'm going to hand the keys over to this dude. 
you probably are going to say good things about him, right? When it comes time for, if a president's at the end of his second term, he's not going to come out and just start shredding his own VP publicly or whoever the next nominee is from his, no, he's going to pump him up, right? That's just, that's just how this works. What, is, what does Jesus say to Peter in Matthew 16, 23? Get behind me, Satan. Now, if the apostles are making up a false story, they definitely don't write that. And if later on through the history of the church, people are saying, hey, let, it'd be better to just kind of polish that piece. Let's just kind of cut that part out. That's exactly the thing they look for. Say, hey, no, let's, let's get that out of there. But the fact that it's there testifies to the truth of the whole thing. Another example, John 6, 66, says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Wait, there were guys that were closely walking with Jesus. They were his disciples. And something happened. They said, nah, no thanks. I'm going to go elsewhere. If you're trying to write a book to prove how awesome your God is, you absolutely would never include a statement that says, yeah, some people just got tired of him and decided that Sky Zone was a better option today. You don't write that. Right? And if you're coming along hundreds of years after the fact and you're trying to edit something out to make it, you know, kind of revisionist history per se, this is exactly the kind of thing you say, yeah, we need to scratch that out. What were they thinking? But the fact that it's still there, just, no, this powerfully argues for the truth of what's communicated. Now, there's a 200-page book there. The article I put on the Hub talks a lot more about that. But there the point is there's a lot of internal notes where you just open up the scriptures and you kind of got to do some careful study and it actually testifies to its own truth. That makes sense. There's also the fact that as you just read the Bible, it just reads like commonplace history. This is the argument that got C.S. Lewis. So maybe we know him as this kind of defender of Christianity. His, his, his vocation, though, was he was a professor of literature, medieval literature. He's like, I know mythology. In fact, like it's my job, and I'm one of the best guys in the world at spotting mythology. I, I know what it looks like. And when I read the New Testament, this is nowhere near mythology. And so in a vacuum, I, I've heard those arguments like, okay, that sort of makes sense. It's hard to have a, a cross-reference point. Um, and so I'm going to read a section from the Gospel of Peter. The Gospel of Peter was not written by Peter. About 100 plus years after Jesus' death, it was called the Gospel of Peter because people wanted it to look legit. Peter was already dead. He didn't write it. I'll just kind of like clarify. And what I want, I want to read a section from it, and it kind of illustrates the point of, okay, you know what the Gospels sound like. You guys have all read them. And you'll hear this, you're like, oh, this is how we know that this is a bogus book. And so whenever it's like, oh, we found the lost gospel of Judas, like, no, you didn't. Um, and, and here's how I can confidently say that, right? This is describing Jesus' resurrection. There's the account in the gospel of Peter. Now in the night in which the Lord's day dawned, when the soldiers, two by two in every watch, were keeping guard, there rang out a loud voice in heaven. And they saw the heavens opened, and two men come down from there in a great brightness and draw nigh to the sepulcher. Tomb. That stone which had been laid against the entrance to the sepulcher started to roll and give way to the side. So the stone began to roll on its own, 
and the sepulchre was open, and both young men entered in. When now those soldiers saw this, they awakened the centurion and the elders. So you start to see a little bit of a mythological element. There's like, there was a huge crowd there. Soldiers, the centurion, all the elders. I mean, there's probably 3,000 people there now that I think about it. It gets much better, though. For they also were there to assist at the watch. And whilst they were relating what they had seen, they saw three men come out from the sepulchre, and two of them sustaining the other. Two men kind of sustaining Christ, kind of leaning on their shoulders and kind of hobbling out like he just sprained his ankle. And a cross following them. The cross comes out kind of dragging itself behind. And the heads of the two were reaching to heaven. But that of him who was led of them, Jesus, by the hand, overpassing the heavens. So the angels' heads reach up to the clouds. Jesus' head reaches above the cloud. He's leaning on their shoulders, and the cross is dragging itself behind. And they heard a voice out of the heavens crying, Thou hast preached to them that sleep. And from the cross there was heard the answer, Yea. I hope you hear that. It's like, okay, that's a totally different kind of narrative, which like, that's, that doesn't read like history at all. Like people don't come out. That, that doesn't make any sense. Um, so you, you read the Gospels and like, okay, this, this reads like history. Because it is history. It's describing true factual events. Um, all of that kind of gets towards the life of Jesus. What about the resurrection of Jesus? Um, there is what is called... The minimal facts argument. And I, um, this book right here, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, is a tremendous resource at an entry level. You have somebody who comes to the point, hey, Zach, I'm actually, I've been thinking about what you said, and I, I'm kind of interested in Christianity. Do you want to study a little bit more together? Take him to the Gospel of John first. But if you feel that a book study would become helpful after that, this is absolutely the first one I'd go to because um, it centers on the most important part of the whole Bible uh, that is Gary Habermas and Michael Lycona Gary Habermas, Michael Lycona um, in fact there's a guy at our church took a, a, a co-worker through that about a year and a half ago and his co-worker made a profession of faith within the last month um, it's been amazing to pray with him and see God work through his life it's, it's been incredible um, but anyways minimal facts argument what the minimal facts argument does it it builds a case for the resurrection of Jesus and it says um, we're only going to use facts that have multiple lines of evidence supporting them which to us like okay of course you're only going to use multiple lines of facts like you can't get published in the star if you don't have multiple sources but when you're talking about 2,000 years ago to have one line of evidence is like remarkable to have more than one is you know it, it just doesn't happen very often at all and because of that to be used as one of the minimal facts, there's three of them that we'll use, it has to be agreed upon by more than 90% of professional historians, regardless of what their worldview is. You know, it would be a, a Buddhist historian, an atheist historian, a Jewish historian, a Christian historian, a Muslim historian, whatever, over 90% have to agree on these. That's pretty pretty high level of criteria. And I just want to um, use a little chart here um, to kind of demonstrate, before I get to the, the facts, how is it that these facts can receive such widespread approval from people that disagree with them, right? Um, 
So here we have the crucifixion in roughly AD 30, and then our first manuscript in AD 1. I just want to walk back a timeline. So you have the Gospel of John being written in AD 90. We just talked about that. You've got Acts in 63, uh, 33 years after, 60 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 25 years after you have 1 Corinthians. I said we would read 1 Corinthians, so let me do that. 1 Corinthians 15, let's look at verses 3 through 8. What we read in 1 Corinthians 15, especially verses 3 through 6, in the Greek has kind of a, um, a meter to it, where it was is either a hymn or some type of a catechism or a chant, or it was, um, but it, it's got this, um, this ring to it, where this would have been an oral tradition that every Christian would have this memorized. Um, and I think you'll hear it um, when I read it. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here comes kind of the, the catechism, if I will, if you will, of, of the early church. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That's kind of, and that, and that, and that. You kind of hear that rhythm in there. It's more pronounced um, in the Greek. He goes on, verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So, where does Paul get this, is the question. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul received this catechism. And he writes this in AD 55, but if he wrote it in AD 55, he had to get it before AD 55. Right? So, flip over again to Galatians 1. Galatians 1 gives us a clue here. Galatians 1.18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter and remained with him 15 days. The three years is after Paul's conversion. Three years later, I went over, I saw Peter, I hung out with him for two weeks. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. He goes on from there. Okay, so we back it up. Here's Peter, <coughs> Paul, Peter, James meet here in AD 34 because Paul's converted in AD 31. Galatians 1 tells us three years after his conversion, they had this kind of hangout for about two weeks. And so what most scholars, it's not a particularly Christian argument, it's understood is that at this AD 34 meeting, it's before the missionary explosion goes out, and they say, okay, let's make sure that we're all preaching the same gospel. Let's make sure we're on the same team. Let's have a, uh, if you will, this was like the first missionary summit. Like, let's get together. Let's not get out with everybody and get distracted. Let's sit down for two weeks and, and kind of get our plans straightened out, per se. Um, so at worst, you have this catechism existing about four years after Christ's Bart Ehrman, 
is professor of New Testament at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, their main campus. He's one of the most prolific, um, what's the word I'm looking for, antagonizers of Christianity, picking at the Bible in particular, and particularly the New Testament. Ehrman, the agnostic, says that this catechism can be traced back to within six months of Christ's death. So what that means then is the most significant event in all of history, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, is attested to, comparatively speaking, with like Alexander the Great, five sources within 60 years as opposed to two within 400, way better. And what this argument actually suggests is all that data we did in the auditorium is completely like beside the point, doesn't matter for anything. Because I'm no longer arguing from what happened 25 years after the fact. I'm saying we have quantifiable data according to the best professors in the world who are not Christians, there's no like Christianity bias here, confirmation bias, that can be traced back to within six months of when it went down. It's, it's hard for me to explain how insane that is. From a geological proof standard, yeah, it is insane. Yeah, it is a... It's, I use, hesitate to use this term, but I think I can use it appropriately. It's evidence that's been supernaturally preserved. Right? Because on a natural basis, the best evidence we have is like one or two sources from 400 years out. And God has preserved this evidence for us that tracks back to within 6 to 12 months. It's amazing. So on the basis of this argument is why, when I get to my minimal facts, over 90% of historians say, yes, we agree with these facts. Does that make sense? The evidence is so strong that whether you're a Christian or not, you say, I can't deny these particular facts. What are the facts? Hopefully that's kind of like brought it up. Say, finally, could you, could you spit it out, Justin? You got to lay the groundwork first. Um, fact one, Jesus really lived and died by crucifixion. Jesus really lived and died by crucifixion. Actually, we have like seven minutes left here. Um, so don't give yourself carpal tunnel trying to write these things down. Let me just talk them out. It's, it's all in that article I put on the hub. It's called The Main Thing. That's the name of the article. It's, the resurrection is the main thing. It needs to stay the main thing. And all of this in more details listed there. Um, number two, Jesus' disciples really believed that he rose and appeared to them. That's the whole 1 Corinthians 15 thing he's listing out. Here's the guys that saw it. Um, or fact three, Jesus' tomb was empty. So let's, let's pause and see what that says for a second. This guy really existed, and he really died by crucifixion. Those who know him are convinced they saw him after his death. And when they went to the tomb to see if he was there, there was nothing there. Then, okay, those are the facts that nobody disagrees with. So then, okay, how do I interpret the facts? How do I explain them? What hypothesis do I put forward, right? Um, and so you've got some... Um, obviously, not everybody who agrees to the facts believes Jesus was raised from the dead. And so you'll think, have things like the liar hypothesis. People say, oh, the disciples were lying about the whole thing. 
but you push back and say, okay, they had nothing to gain because Jesus was gone and they would be killed for us. There was no benefit there and they had everything to lose. So why would they lie about that? Doesn't make sense. Now, the, the pushback on that, again, just to give you both sides of this, is people say, well, how is that any different than a, a Muslim who wants to die for the faith? How, how is that different, right? And, and here, here's how it's, it's different. It's a huge difference. If you've got a, a, um, a suicide bomber right now, have they seen Muhammad, the prophet? Have they seen Allah himself? No. They think that it's true, and it's worth dying for because they're pretty confident of that. These Christians, the first disciples, they weren't relying on anybody else's testimony. They said, I saw this with my own eyes. And so the, anybody after that first generation, the, the martyr kind of argument to me loses a lot of, it's, it's inspirational, it's powerful. Do I have that kind of faith? But from an apologetic, this demonstrates the truth of it. Once you get past the eyewitnesses, it loses about all of its persuasiveness, in my opinion. But when you're talking, like I said, I saw it. I touched him. Like, you can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. He's God. He came back. I, like, I put my hand in his wound. It makes no sense to say they would lie about it. The, one of the other ones is uh, hallucination theory. So what they would say is people hallucinated Jesus to be there. Um, and there's kind of two main problems with that. Um, yeah, one, one, hallucinations almost always flow out of what you want to be true. And of course we say, well, we, the disciples would want Jesus to have risen from the dead, right? But actually it's a misunderstanding of Jewish culture at the time. They, there were a lot of so-called messiahs that preceded Jesus. And what happened was they'd all died. And so the norm was when your Messiah dies, you just go get a new Messiah. Nobody sticks around and says, no, he actually came back from the dead. He's alive. There were other, you see what I'm saying? To them, resurrection was what happened at the end of the world when Jesus came back and everybody was resurrected. Not like one guy in the middle of human history. Um, the other problem with that is Paul, in the best evidence for anything we have in the entire ancient world, says that there were 500 people that saw him at one time. Group hallucinations are not. Hallucination, by definition, is an individual event in your mind, not something that, like, I can, like a hologram you all see. Right? It's not like VR that I can kind of give you all a headset for. Um, and so hallucination theory doesn't work. Um, the best evidence and the best, the best explanation of the best evidence is that Jesus actually did what he said he did. He really lived, really died by crucifixion, really did raise from the dead, and his tomb was really empty. And that was why these guys went out and were changed that I'll do anything. Um, so I, I walked through all of that, not to say that you're going to try and replicate that talk over lunch. But as I said at the outset, hey, Mindy, why are you a Christian? Well, I think the best evidence from science and from philosophy and from history that I can find in the whole world says without a doubt that Jesus was actually God and there is a God. 
and I can put my faith in him. Best evidence I can find. And what you've, you, can, you can welcome that conversation of like, I would love to see what evidence you have. Let's talk about it. I'd be happy to read your book. Be happy to have this conversation. And you can make that kind of blanket statement on the front end with confidence knowing here's this whole tour de force of evidence I have behind me. And wherever someone wants to kind of push in and say, what about this? What about that? Say, well, I may not have all the answers right on the tip of my tongue, but I can do some research and I can check on them. Um, I read a book a little bit ago. It was compelling to me. And let me, let me review a little bit and let, let's look at it together. Um, and it sets you up to, to say that with confidence. Like, I know it's true. And so when we say, hey, making a case for Christianity in three minutes, um, what would that look like? That's the question. Um, we're at 7.30 right now, so if you need to um, go get little people from, from the Vine or you know, youth group or wherever they're at, I don't want to keep you. Um, but, but if you can stay for a second, I'd like to give us a chance just to talk through that for a minute um, of how would you say it just briefly, hey, David, why are you a Christian? Zach, why are you a Christian? How would you state kind of that, here's the evidence that I find compelling? Um, so I'll give us 